Well, happy Father's Day to the dads that are here. Happy Father's Day to everybody else, too. One of the great days on our calendar, right? We all, every one of us, has an amazing father, don't we? Uh, God, our Father. Now, uh, when we come to the Scriptures, we're going to eventually end up in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, but, but we're going to start out in Genesis and work our way all the way through to Ephesians. Not really. I know some of you are already getting your mask on to go. So That's not mine. They all sound the same, don't they? Now, if it's not yours, that honkins. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, if you take your Bibles, please turn to Genesis. We'll, we'll start out there. God uses the family to teach some of the most significant spiritual lessons we can learn about Him and about life. God puts the family in there, and we learn significant truths because of what God chose to reveal about himself in the Scripture through the family. So we get to know God from his word, and it starts out in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now that word God, there is Elohim. He's the, the strong one. Elohim, the strong and powerful one. Uh, the creator of the universe. And by the way, Elohim is a plural word. Talking about God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now look down in verse number 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. God created male and female so that male and female working together to honor God could bring glory to God because we are a reflection of his image. And so Elohim, uh, the plural word, that the strong and powerful one, the creator God who created humanity after his image. And at the beginning of creation, he created the male and female to reflect his image when they join together in a family. And that's God's plan from the beginning. Turn now to Genesis 14. Genesis 14 and verse 18, uh, talking about Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. So, Melchizedek was a king and a priest, a uh, probably or possibly a pre-incarnate Christ. It never mentions parentage, just that he was there. And, and, he, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. Uh, this is 
El Elyon, God Most High, uh, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Verse 20, blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So verse 19, he is God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Who owns heaven and earth? God does. Who gets to make the rules? God does. So I learned something when I was a teenager. Even though I had my own driver's license and I had my own key, I had a responsibility to my dad for the way that I drove the car. And at one point, he held out his hand and I had to give him the keys to the car until I could talk him into letting me have them back because he didn't like the way I was driving his car because he was the owner. God owns all of heaven and earth. He is the creator and the possessor of it all. Uh, look in chapter 16. It gives us another name for God. Chapter 16, verse number 13. Chapter 16, verse 13, this is Hagar. Then she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. By the way, the name of the Lord, that is Yahweh or Jehovah, the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees, Elroy, the God who sees. For she said, have I here seen him who sees me? And then she called the well, Ber la ra Lahiroi. And so that means uh, the well of the living one who sees me. And so it's another name for God to connect us to God. Now, chapter 17 and verse 1 Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. That is El Shaddai, Almighty God. And the Lord. Jehovah, Yahweh, had appeared to him, and he said, I will make my covenant with you. So there's a song, El Shaddai, about the Almighty God. Now, one more turn in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21. Genesis 21. And we're going to look down at the end of the chapter in verse 33. Then Abraham, his name was Abram, till God changed it to Abraham. He planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Uh, that is El Olam, the everlasting God. Now, when I was a kid, there was a whole bunch of people who said, God is dead. It was a big movement. You remember that when I was a teenager? The God is dead movement all over the country. People were talking to him. And so uh, they interviewed Billy Graham and they said, Billy Graham, uh, they say God is dead. What do you say about that? He said, impossible. I was just talking with him this morning. And, and God is still very much alive. He is the living one, the omnipotent one. So we had these names of God that present God in, in this awesomeness of who he is. The ever-living one, the all-powerful one, the one who sees and knows. And, and so we have these names of God. But in the New Testament, God changed the way he talked about himself to connect with people. 
And the, the first transition was when Jesus was saying the Lord's model prayer. What are the first two words of the Lord's model prayer, sometimes called the Lord's prayer? Our Father. It was a different thing. Our Father. This is a change. Up until then, God was the omnipotent one, the amazing one, the owner and possessor of all the universe, the creator God, the one who sees. But now he is our father. There's a, a tenderness and a connectedness that we never saw in the Old Testament. It was God's plan to reveal himself this way, but he waited until his son the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, and the Son of God would come into humanity. And so in the New Testament, we have an entirely different perspective on God and on the family because God chose to put the two together. God uses the family to teach some of the most significant spiritual lessons that we can learn about Him and about life. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, the most significant phrase in all of Scripture. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Amen. Enough said, right, John? Uh, now, now, listen, most guys stop right there. I'm the head. She's the doormat. I'm in charge. But that's not all it says. What does it say after submit to the husband? As to the Lord. You submit to the husband as to the Lord. So the understanding is that wives follow husbands as husbands follow the Lord. And that husbands have limited authority. They lead their family toward Christ and they lead as Christ himself led the church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, Christ is the head of the church. So people have asked, you know, different, hey, who's the head of the church? You ask kids in Sunday school, hey, who's the head of the church? What would kids most likely say? The, the pastor, right? Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's God, that God is the head. That Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And so a pastor has limited authority under Christ. And we have boundaries that we cannot go behind. And so just like the church is submissive to Christ, so wives are submissive to their husbands. And the husbands are to lead in the same way that Christ leads. Not by being domineering and, and uh, massively authoritative. Look at verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, partnership, you have a managing partner. And the managing partner decides when the partners cannot agree. That's true in, in partnerships in business today. 
uh, law firms and accounting firms and others that are partnerships, there is a managing partner. And the managing partner makes the decisions when the partners cannot agree. But by law, the managing partner has what's called a fiduciary responsibility, an obligation to make every decision for the good of the corporation or the partnership. Not the corporation, the partnership. So in the home, a husband leads, but he has the responsibility to make every decision for the good of the family. That's the structure that God put in place. In fact, he goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives. Hey, I mean, that's easy, right? Right? Why did God have to put that in the Bible? In fact, you notice several times God tells husbands to love their wives, and he doesn't tell the wives to love their husbands? Because guys are just so much more lovable. Right, John? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and John's walking home. No, the truth is that, that women more naturally love, I think. And guys have to be told multiple times. Guys, do this, do this, do this. Husbands, love your wives. And then he defines what that love is supposed to look like. Wow. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, that's a big picture now. Jeff and Sherry just celebrated an anniversary earlier this month. 36, was that right? 38, 38 years. So, and he was talking about how blessed Sherry was to be able to live with him for all those years. That's what he was saying. But listen, Jeff has an obligation to show love to Sherry like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So you know what, guys? God's the one who put this in order. Jesus the Christ is the one who modeled this. And he said, you are to so love your wife that you're naturally sacrificing, naturally nurturing, naturally cherishing. Hey, and some days that's really easy. Some days that's not quite so easy. But that's the job. And so the Lord is saying, hey guys, man up. You lead the way Christ leads. By cherishing and loving and providing and nourishing and nurturing. Husbands, love and cherish your wives just like in the same way that Christ did it for the church. Um, in, in fact, at the end of this chapter, it says that, that a God-centered marriage is a picture of the relationship of the Godhead. That a God-centered marriage shows what uh, Christ and, and the Father uh, deal together. It's the best example of God's unity lived out on earth is a God-centered, loving marriage relationship. Now, chapter 6 begins with another word, children. And kids, this is your favorite verse, right? Children, obey your parents. Again, in the Lord... For this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. So if your parents try and get you to do something wrong, 
you obey the Lord. But you obey your parents in, in everything that you can. That doesn't mean in everything you want to. It means obey your parents as long as obeying them doesn't violate God's word. So you're supposed to obey in everything. In fact, that's what Colossians says. Obey. Now that's not easy. And, and yet we're to be taught to be submissive to authority. In fact, we got a lot of people in America that don't want to submit to authority. Nobody can make me do that. In fact, years ago when Kathy was uh, teaching a kid's class, and one of the little kids put his hands on his hip and said, uh, you're not the boss of me. And she said, in this class I am. And if I'm not, I'm taking you out to your parents. Well, he wasn't so thrilled about that concept. <laughs> Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth, a better, more enriched life. So uh, kids are supposed to obey. And fathers, what does it say in verse 4? Do not provoke your children to wrath. It never says mothers do not provoke your children. I think it tends to be a guy thing, you know, egging them on, doing stunts with the kids. That Maybe it's a guy thing. But guys, it says don't provoke them but instead bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So don't provoke means don't make them angry. Now, kids, especially you teenage kids, uh, it does not mean your dad's job is to make you happy. That's not what it means. Okay, What it means is that dads aren't supposed to mess with their kids, intentionally provoke and aggravate and annoy them. They aren't supposed to intentionally frustrate their kids. And I got accused of that sometimes when my kids were little. Falsely accused, I'm sure. <laughs> but don't, don't, in fact, the, the fathers that genuinely really harass their kids end up with a bad relationship with their adult children. And they hurt themselves by pressuring their kids and antagonizing their kids. Well, parents sometimes have to frustrate their kids. When the kids want Twinkies for supper and ice cream for dessert, parents have to frustrate that. But there's a balance there where you love and nurture and care and provide and you're just not trying to mess with them. Uh, bring them up, that is to nourish them to provide for their physical and emotional well-being. It implies direct involvement. Too many dads are passively wanting their wives to work with the kids. She does it. Dads are supposed to nourish the kids. Bring them up in the nurture or training of the Lord. Proverbs 22, 6. Train a child up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old... He will not depart from it. Uh, training and instructing in the way they should go. Now, this is different for every kid. For instance, the Pennock family. They had Savannah, firstborn, raised the bar for all the other kids, right, Savannah? 
And Savannah had piano lessons. And then Hunter came along. And so Hunter, did you have piano lessons? Yeah, yeah. And then Dawson came along. Did you have piano lessons? Yeah, yeah. Who stuck with it? Savannah did. Now Hunter switched from the piano lessons to trumpet for a while when Justin was here and he was teaching him trumpet, Justin Parker. Uh, but Savannah stuck with it. Well, does that mean she's better than her brothers? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. No. Now, what it means is she has a different inclination. I took two years of piano, and my teachers begged me to quit. Not quite, but it just didn't gel with me. I could mechanically play notes, but, but you have to, there's an art to music. It's mechanical and, and mathematical, but it's also an art. And Savannah got both, and, and I got <laughs> neither, maybe. Uh, but, but listen, each kid has their own skills and their own desires and their own abilities. And you, what you have to do is learn your kid. So when I was growing up, I had a brother who could fix anything. When he was 19 years old, young married dad, his wife's expecting a baby, and, and he has this big old truck, and it's not running well. So he and his father-in-law pulled the pickup truck onto the back patio, pulled the engine out of the truck, took it apart piece by piece, fixed the pieces that looked bad, put it back together. The truck ran great for years, and then he sold it for a profit. I took something apart once. It stayed apart. I don't have that skill. My brother did. I love school. My brother didn't so much. And when I was a little kid, the older I got, the less I liked school until I got in college and then started liking it again. Uh, but, but kids have different desires and different skills. And, and uh, I, I hated baseball. My brothers loved it. They were on the all-star team every year. I was on the all-splinter team. I sat on the bench so much. Yeah? Uh, and, and I just didn't enjoy it. And then I got started running and loved that. But but kids have different desires, so you train them up in the way they should go. There's a general principles for all kids, right? You want them all to be kind and gracious and hardworking and show up and, and put their heart into it. But, but there's specific things for each kid. And so dads are supposed to learn and then nurture and train their kids. And training includes discipline. That's part of training. Now, no kids like discipline as a general rule, but, but by the way, parents, sometimes kids can like discipline better if you discipline better. Hebrews 12 said when God disciplines, it's not all just punitive, not wanting to make them pay. It's also instructive and for our profit. When God disciplines us, it's for our benefit, for our profit. And so when you're disciplining kids, that's part of the training and instructing, then make sure the punishment fits the crime, if you will. Uh, one of the things that Kathy and I did was we, we had kids when they got a little mouthy or sassy or something, they had to look up verses in the Bible. And then we had a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, you know, great big thick book. And they had to look up all the verses on that subject and write them all down and then write a paper about what the Bible said and how they could apply that to their life. And they learned God's Word and became better communicators at the same time. So it was a win-win. Uh, but 
but you're, it's your job to nurture and train. And then in the admonition, the instruction or warning of Scripture, one of my favorite warning tags came on. Uh, we had a mobile home, and you had to buy a flex conduit piece. And when you have a mobile home, you have to buy the mobile home certified flex conduit, which is exactly the same as the not mobile home certified, but costs five times as much. You know? and, and so I bought that. And when I bought it, there's this tag on it. And it's the flex conduit to hook the gas line up to the mobile home. And the tag says, do not look for gas leak with open flame. <laughs> Get your little lighter out there. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, but there's simple warnings that parents give their kids, right? Like look both ways before you what? Cross the street. Yeah. And then there's more complex, like Proverbs 1.10. My son, as sinners entice you, they're drawing it. Don't go with them. Don't consent to go with them. Ignore them and move away from it. See, the only thing kids know naturally, the only thing kids know naturally is to cry when they're hungry or when they want their diaper changed. That's the only natural skill babies have. In fact, babies have to learn what that thing is that flies in front of their hands every now and then. And, and it's their hand. And it's so fascinating to watch them learn that they can control that thing. Everything else kids have to learn. So parents don't just assume they know this stuff. You have to teach them. You, you have to guide them. Everything else must be learned. So uh, teenagers, you may feel like you've learned everything you could possibly learn from your parents. They have nothing left to share, you, share with you. But the Bible still says you have to learn from them and respect them and honor them. Even as, a, as an adult, you have to you owe that to your parents. Even though my parents are both in heaven now, I have a responsibility to honor them to respect the relationship that I had with them for the years that God gave us together. And I got to spend about 52 years with my mom and just short of 60 years with my dad. He died a week before my 60th birthday. So, and then it says, of the Lord, in the nurture and training and admonition of the Lord. The most important thing a parent could ever do is point their kids to Jesus Christ. You have an assignment from God to guide your kids to pursue a spiritual perspective. That's our job as parents. It's not to be the authority over them and to make them pay when they disobey. It's to guide them to follow Christ. In fact, the role of a parent is to work yourself out of a job. You end up having an adult kid who can then follow God on their own. You, you don't want a 30-year-old in your basement playing video games. You want him out there being a contributing member to society. So kids, you have a responsibility before God to love and learn from your parents. And parents, we all have the same Heavenly Father. We all do. You have authority over your kids, but that authority is limited by the boundaries that God has set in place. You are a child of God just like your kids. 
So your kids are, once they've trusted Christ, your kids are your brother and sister in Christ, not just your kids. So you need to guide them and disciple them and even discipline them, but you need to show God's love as you share his truth and guide them on their way. Everybody in the family has equal accountability to God and to each other. Now, as you've noticed from the slides, not every family looks the same, right? Some families are different. I ended with this slide of a family. This is a Russian pastor on his way to church in May. <laughs> And they're all wrapped up in parkas and everything. Because it's in northern Russia. And, you know, we don't dress like that when it's the middle of February here. Well, I don't. Maybe you do. Clorinda does, okay, and Kathy does. But uh, normal people don't, right? <laughs> so, listen, there is no ideal family on planet Earth. I know sometimes you kids think, man, I wish my dad would be like some other dad. God gave you the dad he wanted you to have to guide you in the process of becoming more like Christ. And dads, you're going to blow it sometimes. You're going to annoy your kids. You're going to drive them nuts sometimes. Sometimes they deserve to be driven nuts, right? But, but sometimes your, your personality is going to rub a little. And that's okay. I mean, God said you were good enough for your kids. Don't feel like you have to be perfect. But when you blow it, admit it. Some of the best words a dad can ever say is, I'm sorry. Because the kids need to know that he's learning and growing too. And all of us serve the same Heavenly Father. We answer to Him, and we have responsibility to Him, and we grow and mature in Him. And parents who have kids still at home, you are guiding them toward the Lord. And, and you're setting a pattern. And dads, you have the kind of scary responsibility of representing the Heavenly Father as you work in your home. And that's a big responsibility. But God uses the family to describe who He is and how He works. And let us make man in our image. Was God in unity, creating humanity in unity to reflect the Godness of God? And we still have that capacity if we honor the Lord in our daily lives, and we can do it. It's, it's a challenge. It's a brutal challenge. It's, it's an almost impossible challenge. But we can follow God. And uh, there's a song that uh, we picked out to end with today. A song, He Knows My Name. God knows your name. He's not just a heavenly father, a distant father. You know, say in the old days, dads were gone a lot. And, and uh, there was a dad, he came home and he had eight kids. And, and 
first thing he did when one of his kids came up was ask them their name because he couldn't remember. Now, I get names mixed up sometimes. In fact, I have the weird thing I call like my oldest son by my oldest brother's name and my oldest daughter by my oldest sister's name. And, you know, oldest girl, I don't know what it is. Possible, the onset of something bad, right? But... But I've done that since I was in my 20s, so it's... But listen, we have an opportunity to represent the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives every day. So we're going to do that. We're going to do it either well or poorly. We're going to do that in a way that makes God smile or makes Him sad. But you will represent God. So let's try and do a good job with it, okay?